What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 193. And today we are talking about a case that Josh and I both have been absolutely... And just like... Find the word for me. I was going to say enthralled. Is that a word? Intrigued by. Intrigued by. I don't know. I don't know if there's one word to describe this case. We've just been kind of blown away by it. I like to say that this case we're covering today is a cross between the Dirty John case and the Staircase with Michael oh, Peterson. That's a good if you think of, of those two cases, that there's no stairs involved, but yeah, right, same but, kind of feelings. Yep. Yeah. Right. Although it's this one's a little bit more straightforward, I feel like than either of those yes, are. But that has a lot more room for maybe. I think people are going to feel pretty one way about Mister. Harold Henthorne, who we are talking about today. Um, he's also known as the Black Widower. And yeah, this case is really wild. A lot of it takes place in Colorado. so Which is really it. interesting because all the places that he sort of goes to and things happen at, we've been to right, in one way or another. So, Or we're at least familiar with the locations. Yeah, that did make it especially interesting. And I think anyone can relate to that when there's a case in your hometown, knowing the places and thinking, wow, this happened here. Yeah. Just kind of adds another level of intrigue. So I think you guys are going to find this one just as interesting as we did. It's pretty wild. This guy, Harold. Some, something creepy, else. Creepy, creepy motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. Just the lengths that this guy goes to mm -hmm. in order to sort of set up the perfect murders is, is yeah. really crazy. So. Yep. Lots to dive into there, but this episode of the Mile Higher Podcast is brought to you by Pill Club Modern Fertility Stamps and Curology. This one is a long one, so we're going to hop right into it, starting with some background information on Harold. So Harold Henthorne, it's, his whole story is, is very interesting because there's a lot of it that we don't know whether or not it's true, and there's just a lot of, even with our research looking into his past and his birth date, we're not 100% sure that his birthday is actually November 14th, 1955. We don't even know for sure if he was actually born in Arlington, Virginia. But from the research that we did, that was basically the closest birthday that we could find. But again, we're not 100% sure. But what we do know is that Harold was raised in a quiet suburb of Washington, D.C. with his mother, Marguerite, and his two brothers, Ed and Robert. So Harold's father, Edward, was a mechanical engineer and served in World War II and the Korean War. But he was also a violent alcoholic who abused his wife and children, including Harold. Harold always had sort of a larger-than-life personality. His high school friends remembered that he was very talkative and outgoing. Sometimes he could be kind of obnoxious, but his charm pretty much saved him in all of those situations where people are just like, all right, Harold, just your personality was like overbearing at times. Life at the Henthorn home wasn't very easy, though. Harold and his parents really didn't get along that much and he had trouble with his dad for obvious reasons, and his mom also just drank too much. Harold always wanted to be a family man. He definitely didn't have a good example of that at home, and it seems like he wanted to do the opposite of everything that his dad did. He always told his friends that, I will never drink, and I will never hit a woman. After high school, Harold studied geology at James Madison University in Virginia, and he was a popular member of the university's Young Life chapter, which if you haven't heard of that, that is an evangelical Christian youth ministry uh, at a lot of colleges out there. I think my mom was actually in Young Life at one point. But after undergrad, Harold got his master's degree in geology at the University of Kentucky. And there's not a lot of public information out there about Harold's early life just in general. But our story really starts after Harold married a girl named Lynn Rochelle. 
So Sandra Lynn Rochelle was born on August 5th, 1957 in Alexandria, Virginia. Her father was a professor, composer, writer, and businessman, and her mother was a stay-at-home mom. She had a sister named Lisanne and two brothers, Kevin and Eric. Lynn was a sensitive, endlessly kind, and highly compassionate person, and she was also a devoted Christian who had a heart of gold. In college, Lynn dedicated her free time to serving others. She actually learned sign language to minister to deaf Christian children, and she frequently visited prisons to pray with the inmates. Lynn attended James Madison University, and that's where she met a charming guy named Harold Henthorne. Lynn was instantly smitten with this guy. He was confident, handsome, and a committed Christian. It seemed like he was perfect for her. The two of them exchanged letters for a few years while Harold was at grad school, and their friendship didn't start turning romantic until about 1981. That year, their relationship started to progress more after Harold's father passed away. Lynn's family even attended the memorial services for Harold's father, and Lynn and Harold talked about their feelings for each other, and Harold told her that his feelings were frightening because he would never want to do anything to hurt me. And that was an actual quote from Lynn's letter to a friend. And as Christians, they wanted to make sure that their relationship was in line with their faith. This was good news for the Rochelles. Their family got along with Harold very well, and they were happy that Lynn had found someone that she really liked. Harold had a big personality, but he gave off a salesman vibe. Confident, well-groomed, smooth talker, and very motivated. But often this salesman personality kind of gave him this undercurrent of manipulation or scheming, you know, kind of like a slick or a mm -hmm. shysty type person. You know? Shyster. I mean, sometimes salesmen out there, they're a little too, you know, slippery. Like you don't really know if they have your best interest in mind mm -hmm. or not, but they, they say all the right things. Right. But Lynn was head over heels in love with Harold and they got engaged in April of 1982 and they got married that September. Harold planned their wedding very carefully, and this was very bizarre. Like weirdly. Like, I, yeah, he was weirdly obsessed with their wedding, so much so that he created a bunch of binders that organized everything down to the very tiniest minute detail. Like this dude had a binder for every like we're single talking section. Thick ass binder, yep. too. Flowers, catering, dresses. seating arrangements. Yes, each binder, and then he would have different vendors pulled so that they could organize all the information to make the best decision of who to go with and he was really obsessed with it yeah almost like ocd in a way yeah i mean he would even have lynn working on these binders until early into the next morning like 2 a.m at times yeah and he would want it to be all organized in a certain way and kind of obsessive about it but then he was making her do all the legwork right 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 it's pretty wild i mean bottom line was that harold was a perfectionist in everything he did Every picture he took had to be designed by Harold down to the way people smiled or the angle that they faced the camera because he's so much about image. Lynn's siblings kind of got ticked a little bit about his planning habits because their sister was always independent and spontaneous. So they weren't sure how she would put up with, you know, sort of this controlling nature that Harold brought to the relationship. But they figured that Lynn knew what she was doing. After the wedding, Harold immediately wanted to move to Colorado. And he and Lynn ended up moving to Inglewood, Colorado, which is just south of Denver. Once they got to Denver, Harold took a job with Chevron, the oil and gas company, and Lynn got a job as a social worker. Harold didn't want kids right away, so he told Lynn that he wanted to save up money for a whole decade before they had a baby. And this bothered Lynn quite a bit because she was very eager to start a family. And as the years went on, her siblings got married and had their own kids. And Lynn was still anxiously awaiting 
for it to be her turn. But after the move, Harold's behavior started to concern Lynn's family and friends a little bit more because he was very weird about having privacy. Sometimes Lynn's best friend Kim would talk to her on the phone and she would get the feeling that Lynn was kind of holding something back. She got the feeling that Harold possibly was listening in on the other, like on another line. And she'd ask Lynn if he was listening. And that's when she'd hear Harold's voice saying, Hey, Kimmy. I mean, that right there is very strange. Fuck no. I mean, I, re- I remember doing this as a kid when, you know, my parents would get on oh, the yeah. phone I with, like, ask. With, with my grandparents or something. And I would go in the other room and like hop on it. But usually my parents could tell because you could kind of hear there's like this open line. You can kind of hear a background noise. Can on. you? Sometimes you sometimes you could, but sometimes you could. My parents never yeah, caught me. totally get away with it. <laughs> I heard all types of shit. Dude, same. It was great. And my parents are divorced, so they like excellent co-parenters. So they would like talk to each other and I'd like eavesdrop on their shit. That's juicy. <laughs> yeah, I used to totally do that. And that's why I wanted a phone. I remember getting my own landline in my room was such a big deal, like in middle school. Oh, you got your own number? No, just uh Oh, just your own phone. Oh, my own a phone. A phone that shared yeah. the same sure, landline. Sure. Yeah. Gotcha. And so I could listen into all their calls and Oh, kind of wish was, it was still like that. Kind of fun to listen to. I don't. New. I was always so annoyed whenever <laughs> my my girlfriend would call in middle school and my mom would like get That's on the phone true. in the other room and be listening to make sure it's not fun when it happens to you. Right. Right. But yeah. My sister would listen on in others. on my conversations with my little boyfriends and that would piss Dude, me off. Dude, one time I'll never forget this. I was on the phone using the home phone to talk to my boyfriend, in sixth grade, and it was kind of late. And my dad was listening for all, and all of a sudden he goes, Janelle. <laughs> I was like. <laughs> What the, he was uh, a little late, folks, don't you think? And I was like, what the? I was so pissed. <laughs> it was a different time for sure. God, now nobody has landlines pretty much. It's crazy. It's well, that's, that's so creepy and abusive that he's just listening in on her he's, private calls, yeah, he's, he's, letting her know, don't try to say anything to anyone about me because right. I will know. I'm listening. Yeah. Mm. One day, Lasanne called up her sister and told her that she wanted to chat. Lynn asked if they could wait to talk until Harold got home. Hmm. Lisanne told her that she was only calling for her. Then Lynn said that she and Harold decided that they would only talk to family when both of them could be on the phone. Harold was getting more and more controlling as time went on, and he made Lynn very obedient to him. Lynn was not a pushover, but that all changed when it came to Harold. Also, he would always complain about having back problems, and Lynn was the one who had rheumatoid arthritis. And over the years, it started getting more and more painful. But Harold made her serve him anyway because he had back problems. Which I, I want to just point out, too, that the, because this is a very traditional Christian relationship, and this is kind of how my parents were growing up, is that it was sort of adopted from the Bible, the principle that the man is superior in the relationship, sort of the king of the castle, so to speak. Yeah. And the woman is there. Yeah. Is the woman's there to serve the man in a way and that Mm. the man has the last word. So I think not only was Harold controlling, but he was using this ideology from their religion in order to sort of keep her in line and tell her this is the way God God wants wants it it to be. Exactly. Like this is what the Bible tells us. Even though you have rheumatoid arthritis, you're going to serve me. Right. So anyway, finally, Lynn and Harold started trying for a baby, but Lynn was having trouble getting pregnant at first, and Harold was beginning to really put the pressure on. Lynn worried that her arthritis medication was affecting her fertility. 
1995, a doctor found some benign tumors on Lynn's uterus. And Lisanne wondered if these tumors were preventing her from getting pregnant. And she thought maybe she could finally have a baby if she got them removed. The year before this, Harold was arrested after he was caught shoplifting $40 worth of men's undies from JCPenney. What? <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> he also took out a second mortgage on their house around this time. They started having a lot of marital problems around this time as well, but Lynn never wanted to talk about it to anyone. Harold told Lynn that he would consider it a betrayal, actually, if she spoke to anyone about their issues. And as a devout Christian, Lynn believed that the husband was the head of the house and she wanted to honor Harold's role. Right. Well, she thinks that's what God wants her to do. So in order to be a good Christian, she has to just do whatever Harold says. But obviously, Harold is not doing God's work here by any means. He's stealing taking advantage of it. JC (laughs) Pennies. Men's panties? Yeah. I guess men don't wear panties. Why aren't, Why can't it be called panties for men? Yeah, I thought oh. panties was just another word for underwear. Yeah, I thought so too. Undies? They have to be men's undies? Drawers? Oh, okay. Well, anyway, that meant giving Harold the final word on everything. And there was no doubt that Harold used this to manipulate and control Lynn, use their religion. But then things took a turn for the worst. And on May 6, 1995, Harold and Lynn went out on a drive It was a dark, cold night, and the couple was driving down an isolated road when Harold suddenly needed to pull over. He said that he thought the front tire seemed a little deflated or spongy, and he thought it needed changing. So he got out of the Jeep and pulled a car jack out of the trunk. A quick tire changing lesson for those who don't know, a car usually comes with a spare tire, a jack, and a specific wrench. You loosen the lug nuts, take the hubcap off, place the jack under the car, and then use the wrench to lift it so that you can take off the lug nuts and the tire and then switch it out with a spare tire, loosely putting the lug nuts back on and once you lower the jack and then tighten the lug nuts again once it's lowered. Apparently, though, the jack that came with the Jeep wasn't working, but Harold had a boat jack in the trunk, just a random boat jack, I guess. And a boat jack is obviously not safe to use on a car, but Harold decided to use it anyway. At 9.30 p.m. that night, a man named Dwight DeVries was driving down that dark and isolated road when he saw Harold in Lynn's Jeep. So Dwight saw that Harold was changing the tire in a really weird way, so he pulled over to help because he's like, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's doing. When he got there, he saw that Lynn was sitting in the passenger seat, and he said she notably looked very scared. Dwight offered to help Harold, but he was having absolutely none of that because he knew how to do it. He didn't need help. And he basically just told Dwight to... Screw off. Leave me alone. Dwight said that he was super short with him and just kept saying, I don't need your help. So Dwight ended up leaving. According to Harold, this is what happened next. He said that Lynn was standing next to him holding a cloth and he took the lug nuts off of the wheel and then handed them to her. He then pulled the tire off and walked to the back of the Jeep and tossed the tire in the trunk. And when he did that, the Jeep dislodged from that boat jack and came crashing down. And that's when Harold heard a scream and he ran to the front of the car and that's when he saw his wife being crushed underneath the wheel rotor. And apparently his thought was that perhaps Lynn had just dropped the lug nuts underneath the car and had reached down to crawl under to get the lug nut. And that's when he threw the tire into the back of of the Jeep and that's when it fell off of the jack. So 
In essence, this was a complete freak accident. At 10 p.m., Patricia Montoya and her family saw Harold on the side of the road trying to flag down a driver. They pulled over, and Harold told them that there had been an accident. They had a flat, and his wife got stuck underneath the car. Patricia and her family rushed to the Jeep and found Lynn lying on her stomach. The car was still on top of her, and she wasn't moving. They thought it was really strange that Harold hadn't pulled her out, so they did it themselves. They then turned her over and started doing CPR, but when Harold saw that, he started screaming, Don't touch her! Leave her alone! What the fuck are you doing? Get the fuck away from her! And Patricia remembers Harold being really angry. He got kind of angry at us, and I thought that was odd that he got angry after stopping for help, stopping us to help him. He didn't want us to touch her. So by that point, Lynn was turning blue. Patricia and her other passengers took their coats off and put them on top of Lynn. And again, they thought it was super weird that Harold couldn't be bothered to do that himself. The Montoyas asked Harold how his wife got under the car, and he repeated the story of Lynn crawling under the Jeep for the lug nuts. The men in the family thought, who the hell lets their wife crawl under the car for a lug nut? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. It's very I mean, strange. I don't think anybody in their right mind, when your car is up on a jack, especially a unstable jack like a boat jack, yeah. is going to crawl under the car to get a freaking lug nut, which you don't even need all the lug nuts to secure the tire just mm-hmm. for a spare. Like It would make no sense for somebody to risk their life, essentially, to do that. Oh, uh, and even if you did, don't you think you would not throw the tire in the car? Yeah, you'd be why like, would you do it at the same hey, time? Um, just making sure you're not under the fucking car before yeah. I throw this tire in. Yeah, it makes absolutely no sense. And even if if one person did that and they were by themselves, maybe it's just a case of not really thinking it through. But two people letting this happen, it's something's, definitely suspicious. Something's off here. So soon after, sirens started wailing in the distance, and Harold looked like he was beginning to panic. Interesting how he really started to panic when he heard that help was on the way. The Montoyas thought the whole scene was super creepy and something seemed off. It was creepy. It was like he was trying to harm her. We all said that he probably set it up to where that car fell on her. And that was all of our thoughts. So once help arrived, Lynn was airlifted to a hospital in Denver. The police took Harold's statement at the scene And the next morning, Lynn died at the age of only 37, and her death was ruled an accident, and the case was closed. Yeah, so when they took her to the hospital, she underwent emergency surgery, and she actually died during the surgery, I guess, Mm -hmm. because they were trying, I mean, the amount of damage to your body from a whole weight of a car being pressed in the middle of her back, I mean, Uh, just being crushed. Such a horrific way to die. And it's just closed. Like the police just were like, all right, yep. seems like a freak accident. Mm-hmm. So we'll just close it there and didn't even consider anything else here. Despite even Montoya's statements as well. I don't even know that they even talked to her, or even got any other witnesses mm-hmm. statements there because it seems like if you had talked to her that maybe you would think to look into it a little bit more. Maybe mm-hmm. the whole thing of Harold saying, get the fuck off of her. Like yeah. who, who says that about their wife who's dying under crush? crush vehicle all of his behavior there is just Mm -hmm. bizarre Mm -hmm. and the fact that they just come and they're like oh that's what it was she just got crushed even though how often are people crushed like that well it sounds like they didn't take statements from yeah her at all yeah so So they just closed it called an accident so at some point after lynn's death harold emailed his sister-in-law grace rochelle 
saying, my bride is gone. The whole incident was bizarre, especially since Harold appeared to be so concerned about safety all the time. And Lynn was a pretty careful woman herself, and her family thought it'd be really out of character for her to crawl under a car like that at all. I mean, plus another thing to think about is that she did have rheumatoid arthritis, so it was painful for her to probably bend over, crawl underneath a vehicle like that. So or create more back pain in the coming hours if she were doing those things. Right, yeah. right. So it's just, it's just something to note. What was also weird, though, is that Harold carefully planned Lynn's funeral service. Of course he did, just like he did for the wedding. He also wanted to have Lynn cremated. But everyone in the Rochelle family was opposed to this idea because they wanted to bring her home, bury her where they could all be together. But Harold just went ahead and had her cremated anyway. Harold tried really hard to stay close to the Rochelles despite this. And what was weird is that the family saw him more after Lynn died than before. And they figured that he was mourning his wife and just needed the family's support. A few weeks before Lynn's death, Harold had bought a cabin in Grand Lake, Colorado, near Rocky Mountain National Park. Lynn never got to see the place, but Harold welcomed her family to stay there whenever they wanted. The family was very happy having Harold in their lives, and their good relationship continued for many years after this. Because again, they're, they're just going off of what they were told, that this was just a tragic accident. Yep. But in the meantime, Harold was back on the dating scene. He ended up dating a few women after Lynn died, but those relationships were all rocky. His ex-girlfriends reported that Harold was very, very controlling. Within months of Lynn's death, Harold started dating one of their close friends. And just like before, he was very controlling of her as well. Once he pinned her to a wall during an argument and held her there until she finally agreed with him. Another one of Harold's ex-girlfriends said that Harold did something super creepy once on a trip to Estes Park. She and Harold were sitting in his car when he told her, you know, I could kill you and leave you here. No one would find you till the springtime. What? Yeah. That's, a red, scary. that's a red flag. That's like get out of yeah. the car and run. The girlfriend called him after she got home and told him that she never wanted to see him again. Good for her. But at 3 a.m. that night, he came to her apartment banging on the doors and windows. Harold was also very interested in all of his girlfriend's financial situations, and he especially did not like it when family members paid for some of their things because he wasn't able to control that. Which also, to elaborate on this, he would oftentimes, he wouldn't necessarily ask like straight up, like, how much money do you make? But he was very good at finding questions, like, you know, asking them what they do for a living. Maybe one of them was an attorney or he would definitely scope out their dating profiles to sort of figure out what their careers was so that the, he could kind of guesstimate what they would make. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the women that he, he targeted was women that had good financial situations mm -hmm. to take advantage of. So one day, Harold signed up for the dating website called christianmatchmakers.com. And as he searched through the profiles of eligible Christian women, he found three profiles that stuck out to him in particular. Then he created three notes that compared each woman's financial situation. Which he just like what he did with his wedding and everything mm -hmm. else in his life. Compare. Harold showed the notes to his friends and they helped him decide on a woman to start dating. And her name was Tony Bertole. Before we dive into Tony and her relationship with Harold, we're going to take a quick ad break and we'll be right back. So Tony Jill Bertole was born on January 10th, 1962 in Jackson, Mississippi. 
Her parents were Bob and Yvonne Bertole, and she had two brothers, Barry and Todd. The Bertoles were a wealthy family because Bob was in the oil business and Yvonne worked in medicine. They had money, but they were very humble, and they were also God-fearing Southern folk. As a child, Tony was independent and a very strong girl. She was a very sweet and beautiful Southern belle, but that didn't mean that she'd let anyone tell her what to do. She was also fiercely protective of her family. One time, she filled a purse full of rocks and knocked out a kid who was bullying her little brother on the playground. That's fucking awesome. Tony was also a very smart student who ran track and played basketball in high school. She graduated magna cum laude from the University of Mississippi Medical School in 1988. Tony wanted to start a career in medicine. She loved the medical field, but she wanted to have enough free time to start a family as well. So she went into ophthalmology. From there, she became a successful eye surgeon with her own practice. Tony's first husband was a dentist. He unfortunately developed a prescription drug problem and he ended up being pretty mean and abusive to Tony during their marriage. So eventually they got divorced. Tony really enjoyed church. Church was a huge part of her life and she even taught Sunday school at her first Baptist church and she also sang soprano in their choir. God was a huge part of her life and she loved serving as a church member. Tony still wanted to be a mother and a wife and she was getting older. So the clock was ticking on having kids. So she decided to sign up for the dating website christianmatchmakers.com. And that's when Harold Henthorne found her profile and started chatting with her. Harold's bio said that he was looking for romance and eternal love. He wanted a Christian wife to spend his life with. And Tony was impressed by his job description, as he had spent the last decade as a development consultant for a national firm that helped churches and hospitals fundraise. So they agreed to meet on New Year's in 1999. And by the end of that weekend, they were engaged. Damn. Yeah, very quick. Harold instantly enchanted Tony. They wanted the same things, love, children, security, and a godly marriage. And from the beginning, Harold boasted that he was very wealthy. After the nonprofits had their fundraisers, he'd take a cut of the money as their consultant. And he told Tony's father that he made more money in one deal than Tony would make in an entire year. The Bertolis were very impressed with Harold's work, and they believed that he was a multimillionaire. And not only that, they were charmed by his outgoing personality. They were convinced that Tony had finally found what she deserved, a good Christian man who could take care of her and treat her right. But oddly enough, one of Tony's friends, Ginger, noticed that Harold was kind of cheap for a multimillionaire. Once when she was out to lunch with the couple, she saw Harold pay the bill with Tony's credit card when she was in the bathroom. Ginger also thought that it was weird that Tony's appearance started to change after she got engaged. Harold didn't like the red lipstick and nice suits that Tony wore to work. So she ditched them for scrubs. Harold complained that he had allergies, so she stopped wearing her favorite perfume as well. Tony even had to leave her own bachelorette party when Harold called her and told her to come home. Again, Harold was obsessed with planning, and this kind of irritated Tony's brother, Barry, and he thought that his independent sister wouldn't want to put up with that. But Barry knew Tony was a wise woman, and he figured that she knew what she was doing. Tony and Harold got married on September 30th, 2000, just nine months after they met online. And the wedding was an absolutely beautiful event. But at their reception, Harold's mother, Marguerite, said something really weird to Yvonne. She leaned over and said, 
Can you believe that the Rochelles think Harold had something to do with his first wife's death? Yvonne didn't know what the hell she was talking about, as the Rochelles loved Harold, and they were right there with them at the wedding. Yvonne figured Marguerite was just drunk and talking nonsense. After Harold and Tony got married, she dropped out of the church choir she loved and stopped teaching Sunday school. Harold thought these activities were taking away time from their marriage. The couple lived together in Jackson for a few years, but Harold didn't like living in the South. He wanted to move back to Colorado. It seemed like Tony didn't want to leave, but she told her friend Ginger that she had to go where her husband wanted to go. So Tony sold her practice, and the couple moved to Highlands Ranch, Colorado, which is a, I don't know if it's still considered a wealthy suburb, but it's definitely a a upper middle class suburb south of Denver. The Bertoles paid for the down payment on the house, even though Harold was supposedly a multimillionaire. Tony got a job at a surgical center nearby, and Harold quickly started annoying the shit out of all of her coworkers, as he was always showing up at her work unannounced and being a demanding know-it-all. Tony was supposed to be working just part-time, but some of her coworkers would see her hang out in her office way past the end of her shifts. She'd sit there for hours on the computer answering questions on a Christian advice forum or just playing video games. That's probably because there is no Wi-Fi in the Henthorne house. Harold had his computer hardwired to the internet, but he literally didn't allow Tony to have internet access. He said this was because Tony would get addicted to surfing the web if she had unlimited access to the internet or Wi-Fi. Friends and family members started to notice that Tony changed after she moved to Colorado. Instead of her usual confident, strong, happy self, she'd become withdrawn. She never smiled, and she always had a blank look on her face. Harold controlled all of her communication. If Tony was talking to friends, Harold was always there. Harold even set up her phone so that anytime someone called her, that call was forwarded onto his phone as well. That's so fucking creepy. That's so controlling. So there weren't a lot of chances for Tony to have private phone calls at all which meant that the Bertolis were distanced from Tony. Basically, an entire decade went by where her parents couldn't talk to Tony privately, as Harold was always there in some way. Once Yvonne and Bob were in Highlands Ranch visiting when they overheard an argument between Harold and Tony. It was hard to hear what they were saying, but they heard Harold tell Tony, if you tell your parents, I'll divorce you. Bob and Yvonne have no idea what he was talking about. But Bob told Tony that he wanted to confront Harold, But Tony warned him, you can do things like that, but I'm going to pay the price. Harold needed to make sure that he controlled every part of his life. The minute someone did something that deviated from his plans or control methods, he would become furious. Just like Lynn, Tony was a devout Christian who believed that God gave men the role of leader. She wanted to honor God, so she needed to honor Harold and his commands. But just like what he did with Lynn, Harold exploited this belief to control and abuse Tony. On June 29, 2005, Tony gave birth to their daughter, Haley, via C-section. She was in labor for about 23 long hours. Cannot imagine. Haley was their miracle baby. Tony was 43 years old and had two miscarriages and had endometriosis. So they would send out a Christmas newsletter every year. Did any of your parents do this? Hell no. No, mine didn't. My family would read other people's for fun over dinner. My family is too busy moving. (laughs) My parents would read them and like make fun. Christmas newsletters. (laughs) My 
my dad would do a little voice. Merry Christmas. So this is the so-and-so family. Yeah. This yeah. Is a lot what of we've families been up did to. that. Yep. Actually, I think I remember getting it from some of my parents' friends. Actually. Yeah. Yep. Be like their like, Christmas their card accomplishments and, be like, and everything. This yeah. year we did this. And I don't know if people really <laughs> do that nowadays. But anyway, Harold would, of course, be the one to write their Christmas newsletter. And that year he wrote it just like he did every other year. And as you can probably guess, it all focused on him. He wrote that Tony was in labor for 23 hours, but then he immediately wrote, Harold encouraged Tony in the OR. And he even cut the cord and helped with her first bath. Wow, what a hero of a parent. I know. You co-parent. Amazing, really going above and beyond the normal father. Then he launched into this whole speech about how successful he was with his business and all his clients. It was all about him. That's what's so funny about these newsletters is they're often written in third person. And the person writing will write about themselves. (laughs) It's very interesting. It's like a newspaper article, but you're writing it on yourself. (laughs) Even the paragraph about Tony wasn't necessarily about her. He wrote that we closed on the satellite office and we sold the practice. Neither of these were Tony's decisions anyway, but it didn't matter. Harold got the final say, as always. Tony became the third wheel after Haley's birth. She and Harold slept in separate bedrooms, and he was the one that tried to influence Haley the most. He wanted to mold Haley entirely in his image. He controlled every little thing in her life. He picked her clothes. He decided what she would eat. He decided who she would spend time with and what her routine was every single day. Once the Henthorns were at a birthday party for their friend's child when they noticed this controlling behavior, The kids were having a water balloon fight, and Harold was weirdly trying to tell Haley how she should play. Then when Haley still wasn't winning, Harold picked up a water balloon and chucked it at one of the kids. Harold told the Bertoles that they wouldn't raise Haley to believe in Santa Claus. He also stripped Haley of a magical childhood experience because he couldn't let anyone take the credit for nice things he did, whether they were fictional characters or not. Harold also decided on who got what on Christmas. Tony's parents gifted her an iPad for Christmas one year, but they found it still wrapped inside the Henthorns' house the following year. Tony's best friend came to visit every year, but on her last visit in 2011, she noticed that Tony looked absolutely exhausted. It seemed like she wanted to come back to her family in Mississippi. But Harold made it clear to their friends that he hated the Bertolles. He acted like they were some stupid southern country bumpkins. He talked shit about them all the time, even in front of Tony. Harold constantly humiliated Tony in public. He'd make going out with friends uncomfortable by nitpicking and criticizing Tony in front of them. He complained about her cooking, her cleaning habits, her actions, and her family, all while Tony just sat there silently. As a hardworking eye doctor, Tony was actually the family's breadwinner, and the Bertoles sent Tony royalty checks from the family's oil and gas business pretty regularly. But all of her mail went to Harold, so he deposited all the checks. He also controlled the bank accounts, and when her dad found out that the checks were going right into his shared account with her, he asked Tony why she didn't have her own account. I mean, it was her money anyways, not his. So, Tony decided to make her own bank account for the checks, for the family royalty checks, and she got another phone with a number that wasn't connected to Harold's. After over a decade of abuse, Tony was bravely trying to regain some of her independence. But Harold was always on top of every little detail of her life. He noticed when the oil and gas checks stopped coming in, and he probably figured out that she got her own phone. He must have seen the writing on the wall. Tony was clearly planning on leaving him. 
he knew he couldn't make it through a divorce. That would expose the fact that he was lying about his jobs and his income. Harold wasn't the successful businessman that he pretended to be. In fact, he hadn't made a single fucking dollar in almost two decades. Insane. Multimillionaire, my ass. Yeah, seriously. The Bertolles were starting to lose a lot of trust in Harold. And on Memorial Day 2011, those fears began to grow significantly. That weekend, Tony, Haley, and Harold took a trip up to his remote one-story cabin in Grand Lake, Colorado, which is right next to Rocky Mountain National Park. And one of the nights, Harold wanted to do some cleaning outside in the middle of the night for some reason. Haley was asleep, and it was pitch black outside. I mean, they're in the mountains. And he was standing on the deck when he called out for Tony to come and help him with something. She came outside, and she noticed a broken light in the sloped area below their outdoor deck. When Tony bent over to pick up the light, something hit her suddenly in the back of the head. At 10 p.m. that night, Harold called 911 because Tony was badly hurt. She told the medics that she was fixing a light when Harold tossed a log over the fucking deck and accidentally hit her. Tony herself probably didn't even know what happened. She kind of had to believe whatever version of events that Harold gave her. So he tells her to come out there to help him with something. And then suddenly he tosses a log off the deck. Yeah, clearly. I'm just questioning what, why at that time, Mm -hmm. other than it's night, gives him perfect excuse. And if she wasn't already bending down to pick this up, this light, it could have killed her. Yeah. And he probably knew that. Tony had to be transferred to a hospital in Denver because this injury was pretty bad. The hit caused damage to her cervical spine and she had a fractured vertebra and numbness in her hand. Since there was technically no crime committed that the police knew of at the time, there was no police report. Again, just another mm-hmm. freak accident. Mm-hmm. Tony told her mother that if she hadn't reached down to pick up the glass, then the wood would have killed her on the spot. And she said, um, Mama, um, we were up at the cabin, and Harold called me outside. And he was up working on the beam of the porch. And she said, if I had not reached to get whatever it was on the floor, I think that it would have killed me on the spot. Then her mother said that she didn't think that this incident was an accident. And the only thing that Tony replied with was a sad kind of knowing smile. Then later, I told her, I said, Tony, I don't think I would be with him alone in a secluded place. I just don't have a good feeling about it. I think after this incident became very clear that, at least to Tony's family, that Mm -hmm. Harold was a dangerous person. I mean, he, he had malicious intent. One thing I think about, though, is that if he was planning to murder her that night, why didn't he wait until she was standing up to throw the wood over? Maybe well, he thought that it would have killed her regardless if she was bending over or if she well, was standing up. Possible he wasn't looking when he threw it. He just threw it over. And I mean, maybe she bent down at the last minute. I think she kind of did. So you're saying maybe it was just a, it was a legit mm-hmm. accident. I'm just saying, or if maybe this was he like, didn't know that she would have to be standing up in, in yeah, order for this to be Yeah, that's fatal. what I'm thinking. But I'm like, I, mean, mm. I, I just wonder what he was actually doing. Was he actually just like doing something and then just casually threw it over? 
hoping it would hit her or was he literally standing there on the thing like aiming it trying to hit her no one knows i mean he clearly either got lucky with the throw or he threw it in a way that he could yeah, aim he probably it. was aiming it is my and guess, he just but... assumed that no matter if she was standing up or hunched over that he would have killed yeah. her that way yeah i mean like, he, oh it was an accident he injured just... her really bad yeah so yeah it could true. have killed her it's hard to really convey the full scale of abuse, manipulation, and control that Tony had to endure. Harold absolutely made her life hell. Tony didn't have a private phone line and she didn't have internet access. She didn't have control over her career, her finances, her appearance, who she talked to, where she lived, and the home cameras were constantly watching her. Tony, in essence, was Harold's prisoner. It might be easy to look at all of this from the outside and think, why didn't she just leave? But the answer is no doubt extremely complicated, as Harold was a master manipulator, and he definitely made Tony question her own judgment. Also, not that we really have the answers for why she didn't want to leave, but it could have been something related to religion. Right. You know, that's sure. very frowned upon. And also, as a mother, I think it's hard when you have a child thinking about what that situation could do to her. And imagine how horrible he would be as a co-parent sure you know he'd probably be totally controlling of Haley, limit her time with uh, her i mean i'd be scared to leave him as well or could he yeah or could he become more dangerous right if you leave him or could he hurt Haley? yeah and maybe she was planning on leaving eventually she just kind of was waiting until she had the right plan in place sure, or sure. it was the right time you know there's so many reasons why someone may not leave a abusive situation that you might think you know, why don't you just get out right, of there? The simple but there's, logical answers, just right. get up and leave. And But there's so much more to these situations. And Well, and also she's probably like, he controls literally every aspect right. of my life, my finances, my career. He could literally probably, I'm sure he threatened too. Mm -hmm. I could take you down. I can, oh, I'm sure. I, I could take all your money. I could mm -hmm. make sure that you never get hired again. I mean, mm -hmm. he's the ultimate. All types of threat. She's probably just very afraid for many different reasons. And it's scary too cuz I think Harold is is truly intelligent in, in the sense that he is so OCD about his control over others that he thinks of everything. Yep. Like he tries to plan out every little thing. Totally. So there's not holes anywhere that somebody could, you know, poke into those holes and yeah. sort of find his vulnerability and I think he really, you know, he really made sure that he was well skilled at being an abuser. Like he mm -hmm. knew how to cover everything so that somebody couldn't, mm -hmm. you know, it was his whole his life was yeah. controlling people. Right, I mean, he right. didn't even have a job to go to. All his time was being just obsessing towards, over mm -hmm, how controlling am I her control Tony. and controlling Haley. So every year, Harold would take Tony on a trip to celebrate their wedding anniversary. And on September 13, 2012, Harold called an administrator at Tony's eye care practice and asked her to clear Tony's schedule for the 28th. And he said that he wanted to surprise Tony with a trip to the mountains. The administrator cleared Tony's schedule and made her a fake one in order to keep the surprise going. Harold called Tony's best friend Allison Talley on September 24, 2012 to tell her about the surprise. He also told her that Tony wasn't making any money at her job and he wanted her to quit, which Allison was really confused by this. As she was like, well, what do you mean? I mean, Tony's got to be making good money at her job. I mean, come mm -hmm. on. Then Harold said that Tony's parents never called her to wish her a happy 50th birthday. And Allison knew that this was another blatant lie. 
She couldn't figure out why Harold was lying, but she was starting to believe that Tony would take Haley and leave him. On September 28th, Tony walked into a patient room and found her husband there. One of Tony's coworkers actually videotaped the surprise. So the quality of this clip isn't great, but it's important to see, I think, because her reaction her face, to this, yeah, yeah. she just looks like, what, what are you fuck? doing here, dude? I don't want to go anywhere with you. Harold Hanthorne appeared at her medical office and surprised her with news that he was whisking her away. That is just incredibly creepy. You can tell from her body language that she's like, hmm, not a, not a typical reaction to seeing the love of your life. Yeah. Standing there waiting to take you away on a surprise birthday trip. But she seemed creeped out to me. Yeah. And I think she felt like things aren't going good with us. Why are you? It's like a way she knew it was a way to kind of capture her and control her. Yeah. And I mean, to just put somebody on the spot like that at mm -hmm. their workplace and be like, can you film it? And stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, so, he's such so a selfish person. The fact he he's just going in there and, and he's still making it about him, too. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's a surprise for Tony, but it's not a surprise Tony necessarily wants, mm -mm. but he wants it on videotape and he wants it, which is interesting, too. And I yeah. think that was totally planned by him to oh, yeah. videotape it so that he had this evidence mm -hmm. of, oh, yeah, look at me. I'm at, I, you know, She's doing so this such this nice thing for my wife that I love so much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even her coworkers said that she didn't seem super enthusiastic about the trip, but Harold already had her bag packed and they quickly left the office and drove up to Estes Park. Harold booked a room for the weekend at the famous Stanley Hotel, which we have done, I think, an entire episode. Yeah, on, about right? the, the haunting of the Stanley Hotel. Yeah, we love the Stanley Hotel. So they spent the rest of Saturday night there, and then they planned on hiking the next day. The next day, they woke up, got some snacks, got some sandwiches, and they headed over to Rocky Mountain National Park. And sometime between 1.30 and 1.45, Harold and Tony started to hike the Deer Mountain Trail. At some point, they hiked to a spot off the trail, and Harold said that they wanted a romantic spot to be alone and take in the views. At around 3.30, they stopped at a rocky knob off of the trail for lunch. Harold said that they were planning to leave their lunch spot when suddenly Tony spotted wild deer and turkeys through her binoculars. So they hiked down to a second knob, the cliff, around 4.45. They were going to take pictures and have more romantic time because the first knob apparently didn't give them much privacy. Harold and Tony started passing the camera back and forth to take photos of each other. Tony took the last photo at 5 p.m. and it was a picture of Harold standing on the edge of a cliff. At around 5.10, Harold claimed that he got a text message from their babysitter saying Haley's team won their soccer game. He looked down at his phone to check the message and when he looked up, he saw a blur and Tony was gone. He went to the cliff's edge and saw that Tony had fallen off the cliff. Harold reported that it took him about 15 minutes to hike down to Tony. She was unconscious and in critical condition. Then he said he spent 30 minutes assessing her injuries and moving her, and then finding cellular coverage to call 911. At 5.55, Harold called 911. Here is the call. 911, what's your address, the emergency? Hello, my name is Harold Hedthorne. I'm in the Rocky Mountain National Park. Okay. I need an Alpine Mountain Rescue Team immediately. Okay, what is your exact location? My exact location is Deer Mountain, North okay. Summit. 
Okay. About, one mile, about one mile south of the visitor center. Okay, I'm going to transfer you to the park, so hang on the line. You'll hear some, you're going to hear some clicking, and right now I'm pulling up your Latin, your long, okay. Um, okay. on my phone here. Let me try it one more time before I transfer you. They don't have this technology. Can I, can I make sure you know where I am first? Okay. Yep, I have one okay. moment. Okay. Hang on. We say right where I am. This is Estes, and we have a gentleman on Deer Mountain. Go ahead, sir. Thank you. My wife has fallen from a rock on the north summit of Deer Mountain on the Deer Mountain Trail when she's in really critical condition. She's had a bad fall. Her, uh, How far is she fall, sir? Uh, 30, 40 feet, 30 feet. 30, 40 feet. I, I, think, I think 30 feet. 30 feet. Are you with her now? I sure. I am. Let me be sure that you know my location first. Okay. Where the have really bad cell coverage. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm on Deer Mountain. Okay. We have a summit, not the normal, regular uh, northern summit, on the southern outcrops. And um, tell me some, about, some things about the patient. She is a um, white female, 50 years old, great health. She has respiration approximately 5 to 8 beats a minute. Her pulse is about um, between 15 and 80 beats a minute. Uh, head injury. Head injury. Concussion. Okay. Any other injuries? Be internal. I don't. I, is she conscious of breathing? No, she's not. She has not been conscious. She is breathing. Anything between five and, and eight beats a minute now. Okay. Here's the thing. I will pay any and all expenses for a helicopter. I don't care if it's private. I don't care if it's commercial. It wouldn't matter if it's medevac. I will. You know, I'll pay any and all expenses right now. Okay. Have you, have you drop a paramedic down here? I understand that, sir. Um, it's really on the safety of everybody involved. So that would know, really be up to the ranger okay. charge. Weather's good. There's there's no wind whatsoever right now. Weather okay. is excellent. This building is, is at least five to eight miles. Um, there's there's definitely. I mean, I, I'm not a paramedic, but I'm doing all I can do. Um, you could safely drop a paramedic from a from a ten foot rope. I mean, okay. easily do that. I understand that, sir. But they definitely need to probably get someone on scene. They do have safety teams, and those okay. are the teams that are going to run up there okay. as fast as possible and get to your location. Um, they're asking you to put as many bright items out as possible to see if they can't see you, if they can glass you. Okay. Okay. Let me see if I look at your ears Okay. Are you back with your wife now? I'm, I'm not here. Yeah, I'm not with her. Okay. How is she doing? Her respiration is weaker. Her respiration is weaker? Yeah. Five feet a minute. Five feet a minute? Yeah. Okay. Do you know how to perform CPR? Do I do. Okay. I do. Okay. And more about this fall, sir. Was it like a sliding? Or did she fall, you know, directly? I, I didn't see the graphic. I was, I was messing with one camera. She was messing with the other one. So you didn't see her I didn't actually see. I mean, I saw, saw the motion, but I didn't. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to hang up with you. If you want to leave your phone on, that makes you feel better. Definitely yeah. do that. Um, you can call us if anything changes with her. Anything I will call you at, I'll call you exactly 6.30. At exactly 6.30? Yeah, I'll call you exactly 6.30. Okay. And like I said, you can always call 911 and they'll transfer it over. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks, okay. Kelly. Thank you. What are your initial thoughts on that call? I know it's super hard to judge a 911 call, of course, but. Seems, I mean, it's. I just don't know anybody if they had their loved one fall off a 30 or 40 foot cliff that would be as calm yeah. as he is. And what was interesting to me was that he was just, he was like calling out all this information. Like, yeah. You know her respiration. How you know how many beats per minute it was? He was right. also saying, like, literally telling them why they should get a helicopter there, and that the visibility mm-hmm. was five to eight miles, and that the wind. Like he was thinking about all these other things 
other than her like mm-hmm. he gave a few basic facts on her he's like i think she had a concussion like really dude after taking a fall off a cliff yeah into some trees at the bottom that you know the most severe injury that you can think of is just a concussion yeah meanwhile I, literally as we'll find out there's blood just pouring mm-hmm. everywhere and doesn't even mention that yeah it's yeah doesn't even mention the blood and you would think obviously when you call 911 you want to stay as calm as possible so you can get the information across but he never has any pause where he like says oh god or he doesn't really seem stressed the, no he doesn't seem as panicked as he should he seems way too matter of fact and yeah just the spouting off the information yeah almost like he's an emt right you know like he's like trying to tell them it's like he was prepared for this call and knew the types of things he wanted to say to them right on the call right yeah and like not even thinking about like Mm -hmm. do i need to be doing cpr should i do cpr and how can you remember all this data when it's got to be running through your head my wife is probably dying the mother of my child i just don't understand how you would it just comes across very cold it does it's it's sounds calculated immediately it does plus i don't understand why he wouldn't call as soon as he saw that she had went over the cliff right it'd be the first as you're hiking hiking down down. you're like like Mm -hmm. what do you your service is probably better at the top of the cliff too yeah than at the bottom and with someone in such critical condition, you would want them to start getting out there as soon as right. possible. Alert the help as soon as you can and then try to help them. But instead, Harold took the time to hike all the way down to her, then drag her a decent ways away from where she actually mm-hmm. fell mm-hmm. before calling 911, which just seems like a total weight. I mean, sus. that's a good amount of time that he could have alerted the park rangers so that they could already be on their way. Right. But maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe he's delaying so that she's dead by the time help arrives yep. and he wants to ensure that even though but on the other hand he wants to come across like he's desperate for help that this is i think he tried to communicate the severity of the injury by saying get a medevac get a helicopter i'll mm-hmm. pay whatever get the helicopter in here basically flight for life because that's it's that yeah. type of injury and but to hopefully like, sound it, right whatever. to hopefully sound like he's you know, concerned enough mm-hmm. that he wants to just get a helicopter in here versus mm-hmm. waiting for somebody to get there on the ground. But mm-hmm. it's a really bizarre call, honestly. And then he just is like, all right, thanks so much. Bye. I'll call you at 630. Yeah, exactly 630. Weird. At 615 p.m., park ranger Mark Faraday started hiking up to Harold. And a minute later, Harold texted Barry, urgent. Tony is injured in Essex Park. Fall from rock. Critical. Requested flight for life. EMT rangers on the way. Please come to Denver next flight. Low cell battery. Please return message. After this, Harold called Barry and said, check your phone. Check your phone. I have a low cell battery and can't talk before hanging up. Barry then saw the text that Harold had sent and called the National Park Service dispatch to send help. And over the next two hours, Harold and Barry texted back and forth about Tony's condition and the status of the rangers. He also started a signal fire, which was this very tiny little pathetic fire and made more calls to the MPS dispatch. Harold told the dispatcher that he was also performing CPR on Tony. Ranger Mark Faraday was trying to get to the scene as fast as he could, but it had already gotten pretty dark out after sunset at 6.44 p.m., so Harold wasn't easy to find. At 8.09 p.m., he arrived on the scene and found Tony covered in a blanket. Her pupils were fixed and dilated, and she had no pulse. What he also noticed is that Tony had suffered a massive head wound, 
that nearly scalped her. And it was clear that she had bled out pretty profusely. And again, Harold doesn't mention this head wound or the blood pouring from it at any point during the 911 call. He just said she had a concussion. Mark told Harold that Tony was gone. And Harold said he thought so too. And at that point, he started to get emotional. Mark called the incident command post and reported that Tony Henthorne was dead. And she was 50 years old at the time of her death. Mark told Harold that two hikers were en route to stay with Tony's body overnight as it was too dark for them to take her down now. Harold told Mark that he wanted to stay with Tony's body overnight, but Mark told him that he should take care of himself and hike out with him, and Harold reluctantly agreed. He and Mark waited at the scene for two hours while rangers hiked up. Harold spent most of that time on his phone. At 8.41 p.m., Harold texted Barry, she's gone, dot, dot, dot. At 10 p.m., the rangers arrived and Mark and Harold started their hike back. It took them over two and a half hours to get back to the trailhead. Harold left his car and car keys with a National Park Service agent at the Deer Mountain Trailhead. Meanwhile, Tony's brothers had to break the heartbreaking news to their parents. Barry told them that Tony had fallen off of a cliff and died. And the first words out of Bob's mouth were, he shoved her. On September 30th, a National Park Service agent searched the vehicle and found a map of Rocky Mountain National Park. And on this map, the Deer Mountain Trail was highlighted in pink highlighter with the word hike written next to it. And also, there was an X drawn near the spot where Tony had fallen to her death. Meanwhile, Harold was still texting dozens of people, saying, urgent, Tony is injured in Estes Park, fall from rock. Even after Mark had pronounced Tony dead, he even sent that text to people the next morning. He sent more identical texts about requesting a helicopter rescue to everyone, including people he hadn't spoke to in years. And all of them got the same eerie message at the end. My bride is gone. The day after Tony died, Harold finally told the Bertoles what happened. He explained that Tony wanted to take pictures of some wild turkeys off the trail, and he followed her to the cliffside. He looked down to read a text from the babysitter, and when he looked up again, Tony was gone. The Bertoles were suspicious. They went to Denver to see Tony for the last time, but they also wanted to get more information out of Harold. They thought that something wasn't right with his story. Tony's autopsy was performed on October 1st, and the autopsy found a giant laceration to the back of her head that almost scalped Tony and caused her to lose a third of her blood. Tony landed on her right side. Her chest was flattened. She had 12 broken ribs, two fractured vertebrae, a punctured lung, a punctured breast implant, a large cut to her liver. Tony was also wearing an engagement ring that was missing a $30,000 Marquise diamond. Tony's fall was a long one, and she sustained multiple blunt force injuries when she tumbled down 130 feet. Tony didn't die instantly, and her heart rate and respirations would have increased as a response to the massive injuries. Tony died of hypovolemic shock which is shock due to blood loss. Her manner of death was not immediately listed as an accident, homicide, or undetermined either. So a month after all of this, on October 1st, Ranger Mark Faraday drove down to Highlands Ranch to interview Harold at his house. Mark was led down to the basement by a family friend where Harold greeted him, and at which point Harold hit some buttons on his computer and left the basement for five minutes. And Mark just sat there and watched as the computer played a slideshow of pictures of Harold, Tony, and Haley complete with added background music. 
Keep in mind that Harold carefully created this slideshow in less than two full days after Tony died. Harold came back downstairs and the formal interview began. Mark thought that Harold was grieving, but he didn't cry, and he was less emotional than he was immediately after Tony's death. Harold told Mark that he had taken a scouting trip to Deer Mountain two or three months before to find the best trail for their anniversary. He wanted to go there to plan the hikes, and he used a topographical map, which shows land features like elevations of the mountains, instead of the standard National Park Service park map. He told Mark that their original plan was to hike Bear Lake, but they changed plans to go to Deer Mountain because it was busier down at Bear Lake. And the reason why Bear Lake, if you've ever been to Rocky Mountain National Park, the reason why Bear Lake is uh, usually more crowded is it's usually a lot easier of a hike. It's not straight up a mountain. It, it covers far less elevation. I've done the Bear Lake hike quite a few times, actually. It's a beautiful one, uh, but it's really not that hard of a hike. Then the story got weird because Harold said that he went off of the trail to see the wild turkeys, but Mark wasn't buying any of it. So Harold said, oh, well, if it wasn't turkeys and it actually probably was deer or something, which again, like the park ranger's like, I don't think there's turkeys up there. We haven't seen turkeys up there before. But then he went from, we saw a deer to changing his mind again to just say that they went to the second knob to see the views. But that didn't make any sense to Mark either. The first knob they ate lunch at had better views than the second. And when he brought this up, Harold changed the story again. And he said they had actually gone down to the second knob because it was more private and that they wanted to have sex there. Then that's when Mark asked about the fall. And Harold repeated that his wife was trying to get the perfect picture from the cliff at around 5.15 p.m. He looked at his phone to check a text from the babysitter, and Tony was gone when he looked up again. Mark asked to see the text, and this is when Harold pulled it up, and Mark made a special note of the timestamp, 5.54 p.m. That was long after Tony fell, only a minute before he made the 911 call. Mark then asked to see the rest of the text from that day, but Harold refused to show him any of the texts. Busted. Mark then showed Harold the map the National Park Service agent found in his car. And for the first time, Harold seemed like he was at a loss for words. He told Mark that it was his map, but it wasn't from the September 29th trip. And he also couldn't explain the X drawn on the map. What a dumbass. Yeah, I mean, obviously... He drew an X where he was going to murder someone? What dumb. a fucking idiot. And the ranger's like figuring this out. He's like, oh, clearly you don't want to talk to me about this because... You know what this means. And he didn't even think about the timeline of his text messages, especially no. if it was a text message he was going to use as what distracted him from missing his wife's fall. And it was after yeah. she had already fallen. It's a minute before he calls 911. This guy's so So stupid. at that point, I mean, they're like, yeah. holy shit, this guy mm -hmm. totally pushed mm -hmm. his wife off the cliff. Things are not adding up here. So two days after Tony died, Harold called up the family's photographer and asked her to create a slideshow for the memorial. The photographer thought she'd pick the pictures for Harold since he was probably going to be grieving and busy during this time. But Harold whipped out a flash drive with 70 carefully selected photos and pre-picked songs to go along with them. He explained why he picked each one and told her when to play each of them. Harold told the Bertoles that Tony wanted to be cremated, just like Lynn. And the family had never heard Tony saying anything like that. They didn't want her to be cremated, but of course, Harold insisted. The funeral ceremony took place on October 4th, and at the ceremony, the slideshow shocked people. It made it look like Tony didn't exist before Harold came around. 
every single picture had him in it. And some of them didn't even have Tony in them at all. They were just pictures of Harold and Haley. He didn't even seem emotional when he saw the pictures with Tony. But when he saw the pictures without Tony, his face would light up. And he'd talk about how much fun they were having in those pictures. The craziness continued at the funeral reception, which took place at the Henthorne home. Barry finally saw Harold cry for the first time, but it wasn't out of grief. Harold was shaking and telling him that the coroner listed Tony's death as undetermined instead of accidental. And of course, that made him cry. When the reception ended, the Bertoles were about to leave when Harold cracked again. He ran up to Yvonne and yelled in her face, You knew Tony was miserable in Mississippi. You know she's much happier here. Of course, that couldn't be further from the truth. All Tony really wanted was to be with her family and her daughter in the only place that ever felt like home to her, which was Mississippi. And that whole week, Harold's sister-in-law, Grace Rochelle, noticed that Harold was very critical of Tony. He stressed over stupid things like a broken coffee maker and blamed it on Tony, who apparently couldn't meet his high standards. And when the Henthorns visited Grace's family in Austin, she and Harold would sing to Haley to help her sleep. So that night, Harold brought Grace and her daughters up to Haley's room, and he asked them to sing to Haley, who was clearly still grieving. But poor Haley asked them to stop. She said their singing made her miss her mommy. Grace was shocked when Harold looked at them and told them to just keep on singing. God, so selfish. He's so insane. The Bertoles held their own memorial service for Tony in Mississippi on October 19th. Harold and Haley flew out that week for the ceremony. During that week, Harold was back to his usual ways. He shed no tears for Tony, but he made sure to bitch and whine to the Bertoles about Mark's investigation. Mark was apparently making his life miserable, and Harold said, I just want to get on with my life. His story of how Tony died kept changing and changing depending on who he talked to. He could never keep his story straight. In some versions, Harold was looking for a text from the babysitter, and another he was looking for a text from Tony's office. He told some people he and Tony went to the trail to see if Haley would like it, and then he'd tell the same people he couldn't believe Tony fell because they'd been up there a million times. Tony died from hypovolemic shock. Shock is a condition the body experiences when it doesn't have enough blood to circulate through its system, and there are multiple different kinds of shock but hypovolemic shock is caused by blood loss. And when a person goes into hypovolemic shock, their respirations increase because their heart is desperately trying to supply the body with blood that isn't there anymore. Barry knew all this because he was a cardiologist. So when he learned that Tony died from hypovolemic shock, he was really surprised. Harold told Barry over text that Tony's respirations were decreasing, which obviously didn't make any sense. Harold then changed the story to Barry a few weeks later after Tony's death, telling him that Tony's respirations and heart rate were actually high before she died. Over the next two years, Harold told people 14 different stories of Tony's death. Harold also begged Bob to play the same memorial video from Tony's Colorado memorial, but the family obviously said no, and they made their own tribute. At the memorial, Harold was tapping his foot the whole time as if he was waiting in line for something. Again, there were no tears, no grief, just impatience. He didn't even let Haley keep a program from the service. Harold just seemed emotionless, and he blamed Tony for her fall, saying that she wanted to go off the trail. He told a friend that if Tony hadn't gotten herself killed in the park, I wouldn't have all of these problems. 
Those problems all had to do with the investigation. According to Harold, Ranger Mark Faraday was a rogue ranger who had a vendetta against him. He started warning friends and family that investigators would be calling them soon. He instructed all of them, including the Bertoles, to just tell them I was a great husband and father. But obviously there is no way in hell that the Bertoles are going to do that, as they were secretly funneling information about Harold to the FBI, almost like double agents. They're going to try and pretend like they didn't suspect Harold. But deep down, the Bertoles knew that he killed Tony. But they needed to make sure that they could keep a good eye on Haley. And more importantly, they need to bring Harold to justice. Next, we're going to dive into the National Park Service's investigation into Harold as well as the FBI. But before we do, we're going to take our last break and we'll be right back. So from the beginning, it was pretty clear to the NPS Rangers that foul play was involved in Tony's death. So they asked Beth Schott to help them investigate. Beth was an ISB agent for the National Park Service. ISB agents are the detectives of the National Park Service who work on complicated felonies. So Beth took a look at the case files and got to work. There were a lot of things that just weren't right about Tony's accident. First of all, their hike did not make sense. The spot where Harold and Tony went off the trail was super random. There was really no way of knowing that that spot was there unless you had scouted it out before. It was kind of late to start a hike. They had no reason to go down any further than the first knob. It was already really private and had great views. Here's a picture of it if you're watching. To get to the second knob, Tony and Harold had to scramble down a boulder field at a steep 60-degree angle. Yeah, like it just doesn't make any sense why they would have just gone even way. further too. Mm-hmm. Like I get going off the trail a little bit to to find a view or like find a, a quiet, secluded spot, yeah. but to go as far away from the trail as they did just makes and no over sense. Boulders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to what take a picture when you'd already had a great view at your lunch spot. Yeah. So multiple rangers tried to recreate Harold's hike, and they all agreed that the off-trail path was just dangerous and isolated, and many of them had never even been to that spot in their entire careers. The second knob was tough to get to. It was especially dangerous since Tony was an inexperienced hiker with bad knees. It was pretty unlikely that she made the choice to go down there herself. Obviously, the map in Harold's car marked the spot where Tony died, and that was a huge red flag. It seemed to show that Harold had planned on going to that spot before. Then, Beth and Mark examined the 911 call that Harold made, and he sounded a lot calmer than you would expect for a man whose wife was dying right next to him. And like we said, Harold described Tony's head injury as a concussion. And when the dispatcher asked if there were any other injuries, Harold said that he didn't know, and they could have been internal. But this is bizarre because Tony had a massive laceration to her head that was bleeding profusely. The wound was draining a third of her blood. It would have been impossible not to notice this. But not once does Harold mention this to anyone, not to Barry or to any of the 911 dispatchers. He also told the dispatcher that Tony had fallen 30 to 40 feet, but anyone could have seen that this was not the case. She had fallen over 130 feet to her death. Big difference. Then, Harold also claimed to be performing CPR on Tony, but Beth knew that this was bullshit. She had done CPR plenty of times in her career, and she knew that it was exhausting and a messy process. Whenever Beth performed CPR, she was always sweating and breathing heavily by the end of it. 
Yeah, because it's a lot of work to do oh, CPR. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the yep. compressions you have to do have to be really hard in mm -hmm. order for it to work. So you'd be exhausted after doing 30 minutes of CPR. Yeah, 30 minutes especially. But Harold didn't sound winded at all on the 911 call where he's claiming to have been performing CPR. Which it did. So we played a portion of the 911 mm -hmm. clip. It actually came a few minutes later that he said he was doing CPR. So I don't know right. if it was in there or not or mm -hmm. if you heard it. But he, he did say he was performing CPR at one point. And he also wasn't winded when Mark showed up. And also, Tony's lipstick was perfectly intact. If Harold really was doing mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation on her, the lipstick should have been smeared all over both of their mouths. 100%. Mark and Beth were not the only ones who suspected Harold murdered Tony. From October 1st to October 24th, the National Park Service, the Sheriff's Office, the coroner, the Estes Park PD, and the Department of Homeland Security got a total of 16 anonymous letters and phone calls asking them to look into Tony's death. One of those letters was written by Virginia Cobble. When she found out that Harold wanted to have Tony cremated, she immediately sent an anonymous letter to the coroner's office. She wrote that Harold had a first wife who also died in a freak accident. And the incidents were incredibly similar. Tony's death certificate was issued three months later, and the coroner listed her manner of death as undetermined instead of accidental and mentioned that homicide cannot be excluded. So as a part of the investigation into Tony's death, once they got that letter about Lynn's death, investigators knew they had to take another look at Lynn's case. When Tony died, Lynn's family had a sick feeling that Harold killed Tony. And that meant that he probably had killed Lynn too. The Douglas County coroner went back and looked at Lynn's case and noticed the same strange things. So did the investigators working on Tony's case when they read over Lynn's case file. It turned out that the police investigation of Lynn's death was botched pretty badly. Douglas County used to be a lot more rural than it is now and less populated. So the cops that worked there at the time were a lot less experienced. I mean, they didn't deal with death investigations all that often. In fact, the lead detective on Lynn's case had only been a detective for five months and he never worked a homicide before, and he never actually been trained to be a detective in the first place. Harold told police that he and Lynn were on their way to dinner that night, but nobody called and verified that with the restaurant. Police didn't call back any of the witnesses to the accident, and they never followed up on any of the many inconsistencies and contradictions in Harold's story. Worst of all, when Harold told him that he'd get a $300,000 life insurance payout, they just believed him and left it at that. But that wasn't the truth. Harold had actually purchased a life insurance policy for Lynn just months before her death. He got a rider on the policy for accidental death, which just meant that the payout would double if Lynn died in an accident. And it did. Harold made $600,000 off of the death of his first wife, and nobody knew it for over a decade. The accident itself was just bizarre. The timing just didn't make sense, with Lynn dropping the lug nuts and crawling under the car while Harold walked a few feet and threw the tire in the car. It would have taken her a lot longer time to get under the car than it would for Harold to walk a few steps and toss the tire into the back. And the whole story of Lynn crawling under the car for lug nuts was not very believable. Again, a logical person wouldn't crawl under a rotor like that ever. Also, again, Lynn had arthritis, so those maneuvers would have probably caused her a significant amount of pain. But what was more curious was that there was nothing found under Lynn's fingernails. Wouldn't she have reflexively started clawing with her arms and hands to try and free herself if she had if the car had in fact fallen on her? And why would you throw a heavy tire in a jacked up car when you could just place it in it? According to the 1995 case file, there was a partial footprint above the wheel well that crushed Lynn. 
Of course, the original detectives didn't bother to check to see if it matched Harold's, but Detective Weaver from the Douglas County Sheriff's Office suspected that the footprint might explain how the car fell on Lynn. Investigators got a car identical to Harold's Jeep and brought it to the site of Lynn's death. They tried to recreate the accident in how Harold said it happened. They took off the tire, jacked up the car the same way that Harold did. Then they placed a crash dummy under the rotor. Then they tried placing the tire in the trunk, and the car didn't fall. They tried tossing the tire in the trunk again, and the car didn't fall. They tried throwing the tire into the car harder. They then slammed the trunk shut, and the car didn't even move. Then they kicked the car in the same spot as the footprint, and it immediately fell on the crash dummy. The coroner reissued Lynn's death certificate in 2013 and changed the cause of death from accidental to undetermined. So a major yep. misstep by the police that they didn't yep. look into whose footprint was there mm -hmm. or even like tried to look into how this could have been possible in the first yeah. place. Because I mean, his story, obviously, it all it took was a simple demonstration mm -hmm. to figure out that Harold's story of just tossing the tire into the back of the car and then it fell. Just doesn't make any sense totally at all. careless, yeah. On December 12th, 2012, Beth got a photo of one of Harold's business cards. It said he worked for Development Services Incorporated, not-for-profit fundraising, and the address was listed as Harold and Tony's Highlands Ranch House. Harold also had printed CFRE next to his name, which stood for Certified Fundraising Executive. You have to be certified by the CFRE organization to get that credential. So Beth checked with them and found out that Harold was not certified and that he had never applied for certification before. All the stories that Harold told about being a successful businessman were super fishy. Harold never told anyone in the family who his clients were, and he never brought any colleagues around, despite claiming he had all these employees working for him. So the authorities knew that in order to really figure out who Harold was and figure out what he was all hiding, they had to execute a search warrant on his house, and that's exactly what the FBI did. Which I just want to clarify that the FBI is involved because... Tony's death took place on federal lands. It's interesting that, it, you know, if you're not somebody who's visited the national parks before, you may not know this, but whenever you're on national park land, you are beholden to mm -hmm. federal law as opposed to state law. That's right. Um, so the stakes go way up if you commit a crime in a national park mm -hmm. because you're now being prosecuted by the federal authorities versus the state and local authorities. Which is interesting because a lot of people... I don't think think that through as much and they'll go out and try to do something in the national parks to make it a little more, you know, they think it's so out there that they're not going to be found or right. that they're not going to be able to figure things out or, you know, it's not going to be a full investigation, but it's, it's actually way more intense, way more thorough investigation. I mean, mm -hmm. you're now dealing with, and I didn't even know this. I didn't even know that the national park service had their own investigative dis uh, division of like mm -hmm. detectives and, agents that uh, investigate crimes that happen in national parks. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And then yeah. obviously they bring the FBI in to go out beyond the national right. park to investigate it. So it becomes way harder to get away with crimes mm -hmm. on national park lands because you're dealing with the federal authorities. So the FBI executed a search warrant on Harold and Tony's Highlands Ranch home on January 14, 2013. And that's where they found even more evidence of Harold lying about his work. Investigators found tax returns that showed Harold had made no income for almost two decades. From 2005 to 2011, all of the money on those tax returns came from Tony. Harold had actually been fired from all of his previous jobs at Chevron, 
selling diamonds and fundraising for a Christian college. He couldn't finish projects, always had excuses, and didn't work well with others. What a surprise, right? And there was never actually a fundraising business. The investigators just caught Harold in a massive lie, but the next lie they uncovered was even more chilling. Harold said that he had a $1 million life insurance policy out on Tony in his interview with Mark. He tried to collect that policy two days after her death, but it turns out that policy was far from the only one. He'd actually taken out four different life insurance policies with four different carriers. He got the first one, a $1.5 million policy, one year after they got married. After Haley was born, he took out another $1.5 million policy and then another $1.5 million policy in 2008. So that means Harold stood to make $4.7 million if Tony died. Harold probably used her for a child, and now he finally had a girl that he could control completely. He didn't need Tony anymore. But Tony was set to inherit a lot of money. So wouldn't she be worth more to Harold alive? Investigators started to wonder if Tony's moves toward a divorce spooked Harold into planning her murder. They needed to figure out what Harold was really doing on these business trips, and they started using his phone records to put everything together. At first, they suspected Harold was having an affair with his sister-in-law, Grace. She and Harold remained very close after Lynn's death, and the two of them talked on the phone all of the time. Grace and her husband, Kevin, separated in 2007 after they declared bankruptcy and lost the house right before Christmas. Harold was instrumental in convincing Grace to leave Kevin. He showed Grace a file that he had apparently made over 20 years that exposed Kevin's cheating and financial secrets. Harold even tried to drive a wedge between Kevin and his four daughters. He wanted them to like him more than they liked their own biological dad. Grace said that it was never romantic between her and Harold, and he was more like a protective older brother than a lover. She was also always pretty open to his advice. That's why Harold was able to convince Grace to take out a $400,000 life insurance policy on herself. He said it would be sort of a gift for her daughters. In 2010, her divorce was finalized and Grace wanted to move to Texas for a new job. But Harold wanted her and the kids to move to Colorado instead. He complained that Grace wasn't returning his frequent phone calls. But Grace was a single mom now and she didn't always have the time to sit for hours on end and listen to Harold talk like he usually did. And he accused her of just being ungrateful for all the things that he did for her. The switch in his behavior really weirded Grace out. She told Harold to call the insurance broker and tell him that she didn't want to go through with a life insurance policy. But what she didn't know is that Harold never canceled the policy. Instead, he forged her signature, increased the amount, and made himself the sole beneficiary. And there was no mention of her daughters anywhere. When Grace called about the policy, she was shocked to learn it was still active. And after that, everything started to click in a truly horrific way she realized that Harold had planned on making her his next victim. Harold wasn't having an affair with Grace, so where was he going on the weekends? There were no plane tickets, hotel bookings, money moving out, or really anything else that would indicate that he left Colorado. The Henthorne's babysitter, Katie, told investigators that Harold's business trips were always suspicious, and she wondered if he was having an affair. Harold really never told Katie exactly where he was going, and he never took luggage with him. Sometimes Harold would tell Katie that he was flying out of Denver at a specific time, but then she'd still see him at the house long after Harold would tell her his flight was leaving. So FBI agent Johnny Grusing started piecing Harold's cell phone history together. 
and the first thing he noticed was Harold's phone usage on the day that Tony died. Apparently, he had to keep hanging up to save his cell battery. But in the six hours from when Harold made the 911 call and when Harold got back to the trailhead at midnight, he made 22 calls and exchanged 98 texts. That's a lot of messages for a phone that apparently was on low battery. Then he checked pings from Harold's weekend trips. And he was starting the weekends at Panera Bread in Littleton, Colorado at Aspen Grove, which is only around 10 miles from his house in Hounds Ranch. I used to have lunch at that Panera at least two or three times a week all during high school. Yeah, I mean, we've been to that shopping center quite a bit. Oh, yeah. So Johnny and Beth went to the store and showed the manager a picture of Harold, and she recognized him immediately. He would spend three or four hours there on his computer and his phone all the time. Not only that, but he was so annoying that whenever he came, all the employees would try to run to the back so they wouldn't have to be the ones to serve him. It was pretty pathetic. He was going to a chain store to hide from his family. But that's not the only thing that Harold did on his business trips. Johnny found eight or nine gaps in Harold's cell phone history on those weekends. He'd start heading north into Estes Park, and his phone would suddenly shut off. Then six to eight hours later, his cell phone would start pinging again, going back toward his house from Estes Park. On August 16th and August 24th, Harold completed that same Highlands Ranch to Estes Park route. On September 9th, Harold made the same drive up to Estes Park. His phone didn't ping again until he left Estes Park the following day. And as he was driving home, he called Tony's office and told them to clear her schedule for the 28th. Harold completed this trip many more times on the weekends leading up to Tony's death. The trips all started after Tony opened up her own bank account. Only 11 days after Tony's death, Harold walked into the bank and used Tony's forged signature to clean out the bank account that she had with the exact dollar amount that was in it. Johnny remembered that Harold mentioned seeing a white sheet on a rocky knob the day that Tony died. But a week before Tony died, a ranger removed that sheet. This little detail implicated Harold again. That mix-up in time showed that he had visited that spot before. He had it totally planned out. Totally. He was going up there trying to find the perfect spot to yep. commit this murder. Scouting it out. Yep. freak. Harold lived in the house with Haley for two years after Tony died. As the feds built their case, the Bertoles continued to funnel them info on Harold. Harold would cut them off from Haley if you got the feeling that the Bertoles were moving against him. The stakes were high and Harold was becoming more and more controlling of Haley than he already was. Harold controlled everything Haley drank or ate. He'd force her to eat even if she wasn't hungry, so much so that she was frequently constipated. Harold was doing nothing to help his grieving daughter. He didn't take her to therapy. He didn't take her out of school. Her teachers started to get really worried because her grades were suffering and she was having mysterious stomach pains and kids wouldn't stop teasing her. She didn't have a proper outlet for her stress and sometimes she gets so anxious that she started talking in a made-up nonsense language. Around the end of July 2013, Harold Haley and the Bertoles were on vacation when Harold made a stunning confession to Barry. It was true that he hadn't been working for the entirety of their marriage, and he'd been lying about it to everyone. But according to Harold, this was Tony's fault. He said that Tony desperately wanted to get out of Mississippi and away from her parents. Apparently, he lied to everyone because he and Tony thought her family would disapprove of him being a stay-at-home dad while Tony made all of the money. At the end of the trip, 
Haley asked Barry and his wife if they could hide her in one of their bags and take her back to Mississippi with them. Eventually, the family was just done with just dealing with Harold. The FBI no longer needed their help, and Harold started using the family's support to try and convince people he was innocent. In 2013, the Bertoles did an interview with CBS that stated that they believed Harold killed Tony. Harold immediately cut them off from any contact with Haley at that point. All they could do was sit and wait for police to arrest Harold. In the meantime, they worried about Haley's safety, though. Harold wanted to convince her that her mother's family didn't care about her. He threw out any birthday cards or gifts that they sent her during this time. He also tried to brainwash Haley into believing that her mother's death was an accident. He made her believe that Tony was very clumsy and fell from the cliff. But the clock was ticking. Haley needed to get out of there and fast. So the investigators started watching Harold for several days. They wanted to put him in handcuffs, but they needed to make sure that Haley wasn't with him when they arrested him. They were worried that Harold might try to turn the arrest into a hostage situation if his daughter was with him. On November 6, 2014, police finally arrested Harold Henthorne near his home in Highlands Ranch and transported him to the U.S. Marshal's office. It was a day that the Bertoles felt that they had waited an eternity for. We've been waiting over two years for this to happen. So our spirits were really lifted. But it was a relief to, for me because I haven't been able to face the death of my daughter. Harold was charged with first-degree murder. Prosecutors asked the judge to deny Harold bail as they were worried that Harold would take Haley and try to flee the country. Harold had actually moved $500,000 to his brother Rob's account just before he was arrested, and the judge agreed that Harold was a flight risk and denied him bail. And honestly, I think he probably would have tried to, to flee. The case against Harold was mostly circumstantial, so prosecutors needed a mountain of evidence to convict him. At pretrial briefs in May of 2015, the prosecutors asked the judge to let a jury hear the evidence of Harold's past behavior like Lynn's death and Tony's plank accident. They hoped that the similarities would help convince a jury to convict. Henthorne's lawyers are expected to mount strong arguments against admitting that evidence, since he was never criminally charged in the Lynn Henthorne case. As for the Henthorne's nine-year-old daughter, Haley, she's currently being cared for by family friends as her father awaits trial. As you can probably imagine, Harold's attorney really tried very hard to fight to keep this evidence out of the trial because obviously it really does help the jury to understand who Harold is and it really helps to have that context around Lynn's death because then you really start to be like okay well maybe he murdered her Mm -hmm. and maybe you know murdered Tony. On September 8th 2015 Harold's trial began. During the trial his defense attorney argued that Harold had his quirks but that didn't make him a murderer. Lynn's death was nothing more than an accident And they proved this by saying that the police just closed their investigation after a week anyway. The defense tried to stress the point that you can't tell a push from a fall. The jurors couldn't hear anywhere near the full extent of Harold's controlling and abusive behavior. The prosecution had to make sure that everything they put forth at trial was admissible. So they needed to be as objective as possible. But their case was still strong. They walked the jurors through both Lynn and Tony's deaths. And they argued that Harold was a heartless killer. The motive, of course, was insurance money. After closing statements, the jurors were sent off to deliberate. It took them only 10 and a half hours to reach a verdict. On September 21st, 2013, Harold Henthorne was found guilty of first-degree murder. 
and people in the courtroom cheered when the verdict was read. As his sister's killer was being led out of the courtroom in handcuffs, Eric shouted, Goodbye, Harold. On December 8th, Harold was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He is currently incarcerated at USP Terre Haute, a maximum security prison in Indiana. Good. That's where he belongs. Yep. It's scary thinking he could have got away with both of their murders. I mean, if they didn't look into it enough. Yeah, I'm thinking like if this had been investigated by local authorities, mm-hmm. like the SS Park Police or something, if he had done it outside of National Park lands. I guess a big part of it, though, was how many people sent in anonymous tips. Right. That they thought this was a murder. Right. But that's also because it kind of got a lot of media attention and stuff, too. Yeah. But it was also because their family had a feeling, you know. True. And people knew about his last wife. Right. Yeah. He was pushing it. He'd already gotten away with one murder. It's it's amazing that people will try again after getting away with something like that. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like he was going to continue, too. No, of course. He was just going to keep. He figured out his formula. Gets the confidence and just keeps going. Yep. Harold still maintains to this day that he is innocent and that Lynn or Tony's deaths were just tragic accidents. He appealed his conviction twice and luckily both appeals were denied. Yeah, I think it went all the way up to the Supreme Court and Mm -hmm. they denied it. It did. Lastly, he tried to file a motion for a retrial, arguing that his attorney was ineffective. The motion is still pending, but that's... It's pretty unlikely that he's going to be granted a new trial. Not going to happen. The U.S. Attorney General awarded Beth Schott and many other key team members prestigious Distinguished Service Awards for their work on the Henthorne case. Barry and his wife filed for full guardianship of Haley in 2015. And of course, Harold tried to fight the adoption, but wasn't successful. That year, Haley was able to go trick-or-treating for the first time in her life. Now that she was finally free from her father's control, she was able to do all the things that he cruelly denied her, including mourning her mother's death properly. Haley even changed her last name to Bertole, and Harold sends her letters, but she never even opens them. She doesn't want to refer to him as father. Instead, she just calls him Mr. Henthorne, and she wants absolutely nothing to do with him. Today, Haley is a healthy and happy teenager who's thriving in Mississippi, the home that her mother loved so dearly. Just like her mom, she wants to be a doctor one day. And she even plays basketball with the same number on her jersey as her mother did, 22. The Rochelles and the Bertolets remain friends. Lynn's family is relieved that her killer is finally behind bars. And now that Harold has been convicted, Lynn's case has been reopened. We think the perfect place for him is in a prison where he can continue to tell his stories and um, hang out with murderers, thieves, and liars. liars. Harold's love was lethal. If you uh, got married to him, you probably would be the next one. The monster that abused Tony and took her life will never hurt anyone again. He spent half of his life controlling others, and now he'll spend the other half of his life controlling nothing. Amazing. Sitting in prison, thinking about uh, all the things. So satisfying. It is. And honestly, I, I give huge kudos to mm-hmm. the National Park agents, rangers. Mm-hmm. I mean, their work on this case was yeah. huge and just how extensive Beth went into it. I mean, yeah. she's a real rock star here. Like, she really yeah. figured this out along with the FBI. In one interview, she was talking about how she would literally wake up in the middle of the night just thinking 
about Tony and wanting the answer so bad, just being so certain that this was not an accident. Well, and they were really nervous too. They're super worried that because it was a circumstantial case that there was a good chance that mm-hmm. that the jury would have enough doubt for them to yeah. have him like, be acquitted. Yeah. And that would be horrible. I mean, imagine if he was still out there. And still in control of Haley. Yeah. To this day. Yeah. Who knows what, what, he, what he would have done next. I it's mean, so cool to see her thriving in Mississippi now with her family. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And to have changed her last name. I mean, her mother would be so happy. Absolutely. I mean, it seems now. like the families are just yeah. such a great support system for each other. And, yep. and even though Lynn's case doesn't necessarily right. have justice yet, which... I'm sure as time goes on, they're mm-hmm. going to figure out. I mean, it they seems pretty will. clear yeah. on the evidence that the investigation wasn't just wasn't done properly and that that's going to get ruled a homicide as well. But And the, even though it wasn't, it's not right. full justice, having him behind bars for the rest of his life, not able to control anything. Yeah. Her family is obviously very happy about yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of justice, in a way. Yeah. In a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, these types of people are, are really the scariest. I, I was thinking yeah. about it when, when we were sort of researching this, that he reminds me a lot of like a Ted Bundy type. I mean, this guy is clearly, I mean, he's on his way to being a serial killer too. I mean, he, who knows yeah. if he had gotten away with Tony's death, what else he could have done? Yeah. You know, he could have continued and, mm-hmm. and just, I mean, it was all, all about money for him. Ultimately, oh, totally. he saw a way to make money very easily in his eyes by taking out these life insurance policies. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder about life insurance policies too. I haven't had to I look know. into it and I'm going to have to start looking into it with a child on the way. You know, it's usually when they tell you to take out life insurance policies just in case, right? Yeah. And yeah, have those have those in place, but I just never knew how easy it was for people to mm-hmm. like manipulate these policies, and take out policies on other people and, and, and yeah, it's wild. And then get huge payouts. I mean, he got multi-million dollar payout after after Tony's death. That's crazy. And I guess his plan was just to be able to control Haley and live out his mm-hmm. life with his millions of dollars. Like, yep. It's just Seems like it, it. Move on to the next person and probably murder them too. Right. Right. And it's just sad because it's it's so clear that he never really cared about Tony or or Lynn in the first place. That they were just a tool for him to manipulate and use in order to get what he wanted, which was money i mean he never really he never really wanted to work he realized very quickly that there was a faster way to get the money that he wanted Mm -hmm. and he was going to use his charm and good looks and whatever you want to call it in order to do so yep so yeah i mean such a wild case i can't believe i had never heard of it especially with it being a local case yeah it was like on the local news i grew up pretty close to highlands ranch i had never heard of this case yeah yeah harold henthorne pretty interesting Definitely let us know what you guys think in the comments below. We'd love to hear your thoughts as always. But that's going to be it for us today, guys. We will see you you next time. But until then, keep on taking your mind a mile higher.